Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. If you're going to move forward spiritually, if you're going to really experience the abundant life that Jesus provides for us, then you have to get unstuck. God's working in our world. He's moving in our world. And Jesus says you can come and work with God if you choose to do that, but that requires getting unstuck. You know, this, this time of year, uh, we often deal with ice on the roads and you're stuck in a parking lot or trying to get up a hill. And unless you get some traction, you can't move forward. And We've been trying to spend some time looking at some key scriptures that talk about how to gain spiritual traction to make this the forward progress that really deep down in your heart of hearts you're looking for and you're longing for to really experience the abundant life that Jesus has for you. And I know we've had some crazy weather the last couple weeks and maybe you haven't been here and been able to follow along during this series of messages, but each week is built on the week before. And I want to encourage you that if you can, go to the the chapel website, littlestownchapel.org, and scroll down the the homepage, and you'll see a a copy of last week's message and the messages before that, and you can listen to the audio or you can watch the video, and and you can do that and catch up if you'd like to um, make sure that you're on the same page as the other folks that are here at the chapel that have been listening to the messages the last several weeks. But... Because I'm a teacher, I thought I'd just give a little tiny review. So we're just going to do that real quick. The very first Sunday of the new year, we talked about the fact that a lot of us are stuck because we're living in, in denial. And we don't even recognize that we have a problem. It's like the guy trying to get uphill and he's not moving forward. He doesn't understand. And he doesn't understand that he's just slipping and sliding on the ice. And a lot of us spiritually are slipping and sliding and we don't know why. We just think that our marriage is miserable or we just don't get along with other people or we're just struggling with this habit. And and we don't really talk about it. A lot of us men are that way. We don't like to admit it. We don't like to bring it out into the open and say, I've got a problem. I've got something that I have to deal with. Someone that's going to be sharing a little later as part of our message. She had to confront something and she didn't really deal with it until she was in her early 50s. It had been something that had been part of her life for almost 50 years. And it was, she finally brought it out into the open and had to confront it. And that's not necessarily what she's going to talk about, but that's a little side note of the, the real danger of, of denial and saying that you don't really have a problem or I don't have a problem. But once we admit that and we say that I do have a problem and I do want to move forward and I do want to experience life as Christ means, it, means for me to experience it, then I need to, to come to that place where I surrender to his hope. You know, I've got I've to face the truth and then I need to surrender to his hope because, you know, there is a God who created you, who loves you and wants you to grow and wants to set you free and wants to empower you to really make the changes that are necessary in your life. And so when we surrender that hope, another way of saying surrendering to Jesus Christ, all of a sudden the resources of heaven are now at your disposal to help you move forward and become unstuck. That's a great place to be. You don't have to do it by yourself anymore. Last week, we talked about the fact that as 
we begin the process of change and as Jesus begins working in our lives, what he calls us to do is focus our attention first on what's going on inside of us. What am I responsible for? What have I done? And we were called to look inside because that's what Jesus said in that passage in Matthew chapter seven. You know, it's so easy to blame other people and judge other people and accuse other people for the hurts that they've done and committed against us. But Jesus says, yes, what they did was horrible, but how did you respond? And we talked about the log in her eye and the need to pull that log out and the need to really see clearly ourselves and other people as well. And we can only do that when we confront what we've done, what's going on inside of us. And thankfully, thankfully, because Jesus Christ was judged for us because he suffered and died for us, we now have the freedom, we now have the freedom to look inside. It's safe to look inside and deal with what we've done and how we need to make it right. But today we wanna carry it a little further. Because denial, stepping out of the denial itself doesn't fix us. And just automatically becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily solve our big problems. It helps, but they're still there often. And, and even looking inside and identifying that there's a problem, that in itself doesn't necessarily fix us either. We have to start acting upon what we see using the power we have from Christ, being honest about the changes that need to be made. And so that's why today we want to focus on this principle of making amends. That sounds like recovery talk, you know, like a 12-step program or celebrate recovery. You've got to make amends. And that sounds really spooky to a lot of us, but simply it just means asking for and receiving forgiveness and granting forgiveness to others. In other words, trying to make things right as much as is possible in your life and in your relationships with others. Because if you're going to move forward spiritually, if you truly are going to experience the abundant life that Christ has for you, you're going to have to get along with other people. Because they've hurt us or we've hurt them. We have relationships with folks and often the very things that we struggle with, even if it's something that we struggle with by ourselves, inside ourselves, often it affects other people around us. And we need to make things right with them and they need to make things right with us. You might be thinking, well, why do you keep going back to the past? Why can't we just let the past be past? Why can't we let just sleeping dogs lie? Why do we have to keep stirring up these things and dealing with these things, these hurts and resentments and harm and, and you know, hangups from the past? Why do I have to face all this stuff in my past and in these past relationships? Can't we just let bygones be bygones and just move on? The answer is, is that this, this principle of giving and receiving forgiveness, of making amends, it's about the future. It's about your future. And so when you forgive somebody for past hurts, when you seek to reconcile with somebody in a broken relationship, when you seek to make amends with somebody or grant forgiveness to somebody, when we're doing that, it's not just about fixing the past. You really can't fix that. But you can build a bridge to the future. You can open the door for God to work in a new and better way in your life and in your relationships by granting forgiveness and seeking forgiveness and making amends. So today, what we're going to do, because we're, we're concerned about making a better future, because we're concerned about repairing the relationships that are broken, 
by our, our sin and our sinful choices and the hurts of our past and the hang-ups that we have and the habits that we have been ruled by in our lives because we care about a better future and especially as it relates to our relationships then we need to learn about forgiveness what it means how do we do it why we need to do it that's what we need to look at today this is a theme that's repeated over and over in scripture And a lot of you are already thinking, all right, he's going to talk about forgiveness again. And some of you are already thinking that. Some of you are even thinking, if he tells me I've got to forget, I've got to forgive old, you wish you could forget. Some of you are thinking, if if he's going to tell me I've got to forgive old so-and-so, well, I'm going to give him what for. And you're going to just say, I don't need to do that. We've had people who've come to church here that when we've talked about forgiveness, I or one of the other pastors have preached on forgiveness, they've gotten offended, they don't come back. And okay, I'm sad about that. I forgive him, but uh, (laughs) I'm teasing. But seriously, a lot of us struggle with, if you knew what they did to me, you would never ask me to forgive them. It just hurts too much. I'm not going to ask you to forgive them. That's because Jesus is going to ask you to forgive him. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 18. And we're going to start reading at verse 21. Now, this begins on page 823, and it's right there at the bottom right-hand corner of the page page 823, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And I urge you, please follow along as I read. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, "'You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt "'because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. In this passage, Jesus is showing us why we need to forgive one another, what forgiveness looks like, what it means to forgive somebody, because there's a lot of misconception about that. And ultimately, the, the big question that he answers is, how do I do it? I mean, how do I do it? It just, it's, it's so hard to forgive the people. It's so hard to make amends. It seems like it costs so much. How do I do it? Now, the context is, is that Jesus in this passage has just talked about the need to reconcile with brothers and sisters who offend you in the church. The need to have relationships that are open and honest and healthy and transparent in the church. And he, he talks about this in verses 15 through 20, where he talks about if there's a, a brother or sister who's offended you, you need to go to them and try to make things right with them, confront them and try to reconcile, forgive them and do that. And if they don't listen, you take a friend. And if you don't listen to the friend, then you tell it to the church. And the church together needs to reach out to this one, not to shun him, not to exclude her, but to try to together as a church family restore that erring brother or sister back to Christ and back to fellowship with the other believers. This idea of church discipline often gets greatly distorted and greatly abused by some churches and some Christian groups, religious groups, but really it's all about making the body of Christians healthy, making the family of God healthy and building strong, healthy relationships with one another. That's what it's all about. So Peter's listening to this, and he's kind of speaking for all the other disciples. And in verse 21, he asks that question. He says, well, Lord, how often do I need to forgive my brother who sinned against me? The brother who sinned against me, how often do I need to forgive him? Should I forgive him seven times? And Peter's probably feeling pretty generous and very spiritual right about now. The reason why is because the rabbis at that time, as they interpreted the Old Testament law, they said, okay, when someone offends you, you need to forgive them. And if they sin against you again, you need to forgive them. And if they sin against you a third time, the same kind of sin, you need to forgive them. You should do that. But when you hit number four, don't bother. You don't, you're not obligated, you don't have to do that. And Peter's thinking about what he heard at synagogue from the rabbis that were teaching there, and he's thinking about what he heard at the temple, and he's reflecting on all this, and he says, well, I know Jesus sets the bar a little higher, so I'm gonna aim for seven, almost, you know, time and a little more, you know, double it and add a little bit, and, and I'm gonna say it's seven. That's the perfect number. I'm sure that's how many times God would want me to forgive. And so he says, should I forgive my brother who sins against me seven times? Peter's thinking, I'm being really generous in doing that. Jesus' answer is, I do not say to you seven times, nope, not seven times, but rather 77 times. Now, right away, some of you that are reading a King James Bible or a New American Standard or something like that, you remembered memorizing this story as a kid, you heard 70 times seven. And I gotta admit, the, the words Jesus used and the words that Matthew wrote down here, the, the, the word that he used for that 70 there, it can mean 70 times or it can mean 70. So I'm not exactly sure what Jesus is saying there precisely. But can I just say this? If it's 70 times seven, which would be 490, or 77, he's saying it's a whole lot more than you're saying, Peter. 
It's a whole lot more than three times. It's a whole lot more than seven times. It's way more. The point that he's trying to make is it's supposed to be a number that's unsurpassed. It's supposed to be a number that keeps on going. You don't stop forgiving somebody. In fact, if you're counting how many times you forgive somebody, guess what you haven't done? You haven't forgiven them. You're just biding your time until they hit the magic number and you can lower the boom on them. If we're counting how many times we've forgiven somebody, Jesus is not talking about counting times we've forgiven. He's saying don't stop forgiving. Keep on forgiving the people who've hurt you. There should be an infinite amount of forgiveness. Now why is this? Again, the context, it's about restoring relationships. We need to keep on forgiving because we're living with people who are sinners like us and we keep on hurting each other. We say things and do things that hurt each other and we forget each other. Sometimes we hurt each other on purpose and sometimes it's by accident, but we hurt each other. And what are you going to do? And if you keep breaking off relationships, they're too painful, they're they're so neglectful, they're so irresponsible, they keep hurting me and I have to break it off, you're pretty soon gonna be the church of all by myself. And I'm not sure that God's going to show up at that church with you. The point is, is that Jesus died in, to save a community, a family, an assembly of believers. And we need to get along with each other. And the only way that we're going to get along is if we have a heaping dose that we regularly eat and give to one another, a dose of forgiveness. We've got to do that. And that's why Jesus is saying it has to be an infinite amount of forgiveness. That's why you have to keep on forgiving and not stopping. Now, I understand that if they keep on doing the same old thing, then there needs to be the correction. Look, you keep doing that and it keeps on hurting. So, so there needs to be that correction and that restoration. Let's fix the problem so we don't, you know, the, the guy's drinking the hot chocolate. He keeps getting a stabbing pain in his eye, his right eye. He goes to the ophthalmologist and says, doctor, every time I drink hot chocolate, I get a stabbing pain in an eye. And the doctor says, did you take the spoon out? <laughs> fix the problem. <laughs> fix the problem. So, so there's a need to fix the problem, but our job is to keep forgiving. Not to let people walk all over us, but to keep forgiving and then speaking up and saying, you know, you keep that spoon in that cup and you keep stabbing us with in the, in the eye. You keep saying that. Can we fix it? I forgive you, but can we fix this? Can I help you? Let's work on this. I forgive you. I don't hold it against you, but it keeps on hurting. Can we fix this? Can God help you fix this? Can I help you fix this? And let's do that. That's, that's, you take verses 15 to 20 with 21 and 22. We're trying to restore, but we do it in a spirit of forgiveness and humility and restoring one another. It's correction. It's restoration. And it's all covered over with a layer, a heavy layer of forgiveness and doing that. So Jesus is saying, you've been freely forgiven, so freely forgive. And he explains that in a story that he's about to tell. And I gotta tell you that this story is full of that hyperbole stuff that Jesus is fond of doing. These exaggerated stories that seem so incredibly ridiculous and almost hilarious to get a point across. And his crowd would be listening, the listeners would be hearing Jesus and they just would be shaking their heads and they would be laughing at almost every one of the characters in the story Jesus is about to tell. 
they, they would think that the king was a fool. And they would think that the first servant was a fool. And they would just be shaking their head and just going, I can't believe that that's what forgiveness looks like. And yet Jesus says that's exactly what forgiveness looks like. And it may seem ridiculous to you, but it's no laughing matter to God because he loves you and wants to restore the relationship with you. So look at the story. So Jesus, as he's telling, just kind of summarizing and paraphrasing a little bit the scripture that, that Jesus has just given this, this parable, he says the kingdom of heaven, this is what it's like. This is the characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. And the characteristic of the kingdom of heaven, it's about generous forgiveness. Freely, fully forgiving one another. That's a dominant characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. And this is actually the second reason why we need to forgive. Not only does it rebuild relationships that are broken and begin the process of restoration, but it's a characteristic of people who belong to Christ. It's a characteristic of the people who belong to his kingdom and his family. And so that's another reason why. We're, we're called to be forgiving. And so he says, this kingdom of heaven, it can be compared to the king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And so the, the picture that Jesus wants us to imagine is some Gentile king, maybe somebody like King Herod or one of his sons, and they, they are king of the entire territory and they're very wealthy and very powerful and they have these high officials in their royal court and they're called servants of the king, literally slaves of the king. And maybe, maybe he's talking about the treasurers of the different departments of the kingdom. Maybe he's talking about the governors, the high officials in the kingdom. That's who is being called to give an account. It would be like the president or a governor calling the different cabinet secretaries and department leaders in of the government to come and give an account. Tell me your budget. Tell me what you spent. Tell me what you lost. Tell me what you did. And just having that annual accounting. And that's the season of the year when the books are getting audited. And the king wants to know, what kind of losses he's had and what kind of gains he's had and how, how solvent is the fi- are the finances of the kingdom. And so he's brought this, these servants in and they're, they're beginning to settle the accounts. And verse 24, it says, as he began to settle, there was one of his servants who was brought in and he owed 10,000 talents. Now remember, talent in the New Testament is talking about a measurement of money and not your skill and abilities that really impress other people at a talent show. He's talking about a quantity of money and wealth. And, and a talent was basically measured this way. It was about 75 pounds to 100 pounds. It was the amount of weight a soldier in the Roman army could carry on his back and stuff in his backpack. And so if you can just imagine, you know, a soldier marching into battle carrying 75 pounds or 100 pounds of gold on his back, that was a talent. So what is that worth? Well, let's try to do the math a little bit. So uh, I don't know about you the last time you checked on your gold reserves and how valuable they were. (laughs) I checked, but I don't have any gold reserves. I just want to let you know that. But uh, the price of gold on Friday at close of trading was $1,180 per ounce. $1,180 per ounce of gold. So when you start doing the math, you know how many ounces in a pound, how many pounds in a talent, and then you say this guy owed 10,000 talents, which was the highest number that they would write in Greek, the New Testament Greek, so it may have even been more. This guy owes something that's worth 14 
trillion dollars. Which is so incredibly ridiculous because the total amount of money in circulation in that kingdom wasn't even worth that. He owes more money than the kingdom has. And you're saying, how in the world would he get that? And, and the people listening to Jesus are like you and me. They'd be scratching their heads and saying, what a fool. <laughs> what did he do? What ponies did he bet on? What, what, what condos did he buy? What, what Brooklyn Bridge did he get? What was it that he did that he would owe that kind of money, $14 trillion to the king? More money than the entire kingdom has. That's the point Jesus is trying to make is that this man just owes a ridiculous amount of money, a laughable amount of money. It's so incredible how large this man's debt is to the king. So the king's got to collect because this guy owes the money. And since he could not pay, duh, <laughs> since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and literally sold as a slave with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the king says, look, I'm never going to get this money back, but I can get some justice. Maybe a little bit on the return. Highest amount of money that a slave was ever sold for during the time of Jesus was one talent. So a couple thousand dollars. And uh, you know, a little more than that, obviously. But it's a drop in the bucket compared to what the man owes. And, and so the king is saying, okay, well, not just the man, but we'll take his wife, we'll take all his kids, their families, friends, family, relatives. We'll take all this guy's property, all his, all his equipment, all his stuff that he owns. We'll just liquidate all of that and we'll put that in the treasury to compensate for what he owes. We'll make up the debt that way. And that was common in those days. They could do that. And that's how you paid off your debts. You sold yourself into slavery in that way. So the servant fell on his knees in verse 26, implored him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He doesn't say, can I get one of those low interest rates credit cards and just roll everything over onto that? He, he doesn't say, Please cancel the debt. He's not asking for that. He's saying, could you just be patient and I can pay it off? Just give me a year. I know somebody that knows some money, has some money, and, and I can get it to get, just give me some time. Give me a little bit more time and I can pay it back. And the king is listening to his pleadings, his repeated, his, his, his repeated begging that he's doing here. And it says in verse 27 that out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is what's absolutely incredible. The king says, you know what? There's no way in the world that you're going to pay me that $14 trillion. I'm just going to cancel the debt. You don't owe me anything. You guys, you and me, we're even Stephen. We're all square. I cancel the debt. Well, the people listening to the crowd, listening to Jesus, the people in the crowd listening to Jesus, they think the man is foolish for racking up that kind of debt. They now think the king is even more foolish. That you would cancel that kind of debt? Are you crazy? That you would forgive $14 trillion? What are you doing? That's a crazy king, a foolish king for doing that. But he does. He just releases the man of the debt and he cancels the debt. He does even better than what the man asked for. The man is asking for more time and he will somehow try to pay it off. But the king says, I know you can't pay it off, so I'm just going to cancel the debt. 
You don't owe me a penny. You can walk out free. You don't have to go to prison. You have to give me a penny. You're free. I've canceled the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, again, another monetary value here. A denarii was basically what a laborer would be paid for a day's work. So imagine somebody working minimum wage, getting minimum wage for a day of labor, and that was approximately what a denarii would be worth today. Okay? But this man owes this first servant, the second service owes him 100 denarii. That's about four months' worth of wages. So, so you could take this. You could take your annual pay and divide it into thirds and take one-third of that, and that's what this guy owed. Maybe a couple thousand dollars, maybe a little more than that. That's a sizable sum. That's a, that's a lot of money. You don't just throw that kind of money away. At least I wouldn't. I'm sure you wouldn't either. So it's a significant debt. But it's nothing compared to the $14 trillion the first guy owes. Do you, see, do you see that? The difference between the two? He found this fellow who owed him 100 denarii and he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And the picture here, it's very graphic, isn't it? He's got him by the throat, he's shaking him and he's saying, pay me what you owe. Pay it back now. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, not very gracious. Incredibly harsh and cruel, isn't it? The man who owes the 100 denarii says the same thing that the man who owed the $14 trillion, the, the 10,000 talents. He says, have patience with me and I will repay you. Says almost the identically the same words. The only thing he doesn't say is I will pay you back everything like the first guy said. I will pay everything. I will pay you back. Have patience with me. But the man refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The man is begging for mercy, begging for time so he can repay the debt. And it's realistic that he could pay the debt. It's a small amount given the time. He probably could just need to go out and talk to a couple, couple lenders or maybe go to some cash reserves or savings. I can pay the debt. But the man is unwilling. It says he doesn't even listen to him. Not only does he not listen to him, but he actually turns from him and starts walking away. And not only is he turning him from him and walking away and not listening to him, but he's actually asking other people to throw him into jail. He had him thrown into, into prison just like the king was going to do to him. He's now doing to this fellow worker, this fellow servant. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, he was greatly, they were greatly distressed. They were really ticked off, is Morgan's paraphrase. They were angry, they were sad, they were utterly dismayed that this servant who had been treated so graciously by the king and had this incredible debt that no one could pay, had it forgiven, had it canceled, this same man is now demanding the payback of a couple thousand dollars and showing no mercy and no grace in this whatsoever. They reported it. They went and reported it to the master, all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Why was he so wicked? Wasn't he just getting what was due? Didn't he have a right to get the money paid back? Of course he had that right. There's no question. He was owed the money. But he was not showing grace because he had received grace. 
He had been forgiven. He had his debt canceled fully and freely. And he was not willing to extend the same kind of grace to this fellow servant. And that's why the king calls him wicked. Because he doesn't understand, he hasn't grasped what grace means. How free and generous the king has been to him. He's not willing to show that same degree of graciousness and generosity and mercy and compassion to the second servant. You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. I was merciful to you and compassionate and I forgave you. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This is what Jesus is trying to drive at as he's answering Peter's question. How many times do I forgive? As you have received mercy, you need to extend mercy. As you have been forgiven, you need to forgive. And how has God forgiven you? Look how generously how abundantly, how fully, how freely He has forgiven you. You extend that forgiveness to others. And in His anger, His Master delivered Him to the jailers, literally the tormentors, the torturers. Not just you're incarcerated, but you're going to get tortured every day. That's on the agenda. Every day in prison, you get tortured. You're going to suffer and I'm doing this to you because you're not willing to show mercy and forgiveness to others. In his anger, he delivered him to the, the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus concludes the story by saying, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you're not willing to forgive sincerely, because you're grateful for the forgiveness that you've received, you can expect that you'll receive God's justice and not His mercy. We deserve His punishment. We all deserve to be destroyed by Him, to be annihilated, to be punished. But we don't get that because God is so merciful and so gracious to us. The reason we forgive is because it does rebuild broken relationships, but it's also the characteristic of His kingdom. You might be thinking, but wait a minute, it sounds like forgiving is a condition for getting saved. You know, I have to forgive or I don't get saved, and it's not that. It's, it's, it's like this, okay? If you... You don't forgive to become a Christian, but if you're a Christian, you do forgive. Okay. Okay. If I, you get that. It's really not that difficult. It's just, it's a characteristic. It's part of the nature of someone who's a Christian. Somebody who's received the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, they want to give that same grace and forgiveness to others. And the problem is maybe they've never received it though they name the name of Jesus. Maybe they go to church but they've never received mercy. Maybe they've heard the word. Maybe they prayed a prayer. Maybe they went forward or raised their hand and they did something that people are saying, hey, you're a Christian now, but they've never experienced the grace of God. I think 
The big difference between the first man and the second man is that the first man, he received all the grace of that king, but he was still trying to earn it. I will pay it back. And I think he sees that second servant who owes him the couple thousand dollars, pay me what you owe, violently seeking to seize it, being unmerciful because he's, he's got to collect that money because he's got to somehow pay back the king, even though the king has said, you don't owe me anything. And so many of us go through life thinking I've got to pay God back when he has done so much to forgive us and restore us into a right relationship with him. What is forgiveness? It's canceling the debt that other people have to you. It's letting go of it. It's releasing them from the judgment that they deserve, the punishment that they deserve. It's releasing them from the vengeance they deserve to have enacted by you. You let go of that. You release them. Forgiveness is not saying, oh, it's okay. Forgiveness is not, oh, never mind. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not saying that. It's not just being tolerant of somebody. Asking for forgiveness is certainly not saying, I apologize. What does that mean? I still don't know. But it's saying, I did wrong and I don't deserve for you to forgive me, but I would like to be forgiven. Would you please forgive me? <laughs> forgiveness is something that you and I choose to do. It's something that's sacrificial. It's something that's very costly. When you see the king canceling the debt of $14 trillion that that man owes, more money than the entire kingdom had, the king is willing to let go of it. That is a picture of forgiveness. I'm willing to let go of that. I'm no longer going to hold it against you. And how is it possible for God to forgive you and I that way? Because the king in this story represents God, right? I think we all see that, correct? How is he able to do that? That doesn't seem at all fair. It certainly doesn't seem just. How is he able to do that? Because that God... Our Heavenly Father sent His Son into this world and that Son lived a perfectly innocent life in every way and had not done anything to offend His Father or hurt other people. He certainly never hurt Himself. He always did what was right and He was innocent. Of all the human beings that have ever lived, He was not in debt to His Heavenly Father because of sin. But you and I are. All of us. We're like the first servant. And yet Jesus was sold into slavery, in a sense. Judas got 30 pieces of silver for him when he betrayed him. And he was handed over to the torturers. And Jesus suffered and bled and died, nailed to the cross, and he was paying our debt. Do you see that? So here I am with my debt of sin. All that I've done that's offended God, hurt other people, and hurt myself. All the sins I've done, this, I, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing. I am in debt for $14 trillion or more to God. And here's Jesus with all the, the righteousness and beauty and glory of heaven. All of the divine assets, a positive balance sheet. He came to save and he assumes all my liabilities and his assets 
completely wipe them out. They're consumed by the, by the righteousness of Christ. They're consumed by the assets that he has. And now my debt has been liquidated. It's been, been absolved. Maybe it's a better way to say it. The debt has been paid back because Christ gave his life for me. That's the picture of what forgiveness is. It requires sacrifice. It requires humility. It's very painful. It's very costly. But forgiveness is letting go. Forgiveness is not forgetting about it. Forgiveness is not trusting somebody because maybe you'll never be able to trust them. But you can forgive them. It's the first step in making amends. And remember, making amends is, is just asking for forgiveness, seeking to make things right, and then granting forgiveness, offering forgiveness, and doing your part. Often we make amends, often we offer forgiveness, or we seek forgiveness, and the other person wants nothing to do with it. They're still mad, they're still upset, they're still brokenhearted over what's on, or they become so bitter over it that they don't want to reconcile, they don't want to forgive, or they don't want to be forgiven. Maybe they'll never ask for forgiveness. Maybe they can't ask for forgiveness because they're gone. But we're called to do our part as much as is possible on our part. We are to live in peace with others and that means making amends and seeking forgiveness and granting forgiveness. Now somebody here at the chapel who's learned an awful lot about granting and forgiving and receiving forgiveness is Chandra Smith. And I'd like you to welcome Chandra. She's going to come and just share briefly a, a testimony about how God's forgiveness in her own life and her opportunity to extend forgiveness to people who've hurt her in a tremendous way, how powerful that is. God bless you, sister. I'm always amazed when Pastor Scott gets up here and preaches and doesn't have a whole stack of notes. Um, I'm very thankful that Celebrate Recovery wants us to have notes and to read them, so I'm going to do that. <clears throat> the summer after I graduated from college, I worked as a nature director at a camp in Connecticut. After a particularly difficult week, one of my staff told me that she wished she could be as patient and especially as forgiving as me. My response to her then was something that would become a great challenge to me later, years later. I said, I don't think there's anything that given time I couldn't forgive. I'm an adult survivor of childhood and teenage sexual and emotional abuse. I stand before you today no longer a victim. And because of Jesus Christ, I know that one day I will be victorious over my past. From the age of four until 16, I was sexually abused. When I was 16, the guy I was dating actually helped me finally be brave enough to stand up for myself. The sexual abuse ended, but the emotional abuse and manipulation continued. By now, some of you may be wondering why I never spoke up. And it's because at four years old, he told me it was my fault. He told me it was my shame. He told me that if I talked, no one was going to believe me. It would destroy our family. And he told me my cooperation and silence protected others. My father's secrets remained hidden within me until I was 52 years old and caring for him as he died of cancer. Suddenly, memories of all the horror flooded me 
and I was broadsided with the depth of the abuse, and I finally understood the truth that none of it had ever been my fault. And that's when I began recovery. My husband, the love of my life, has stood through me through some really difficult times. My counselor has led me, questioned me, challenged me, and walked with me into very dark places of my life to bring them into the light. Pastor Scott has supported me. His honest anger at my father helped me understand that it was actually healthy and okay to be angry over the abuse and at the abuser. It also took some deep Bible studying on forgiveness, some powerful sermons, and Celebrate Recovery to challenge me to evaluate all my relationships, offer forgiveness to people who have hurt me, and make amends for harm I've done to others. Surely no one would ever be expected to forgive someone for the things that my father did to me over and over. And none of it was my fault, so I didn't have any amends to make. I was the queen of excuses and rationalizations. If they knew everything he did to me, they'd never tell me that God expects me to forgive. I didn't deserve what happened. I could never forgive that. If he had not done so-and-so, I would not have done so-and-so, which means it wasn't my fault that I did so-and-so. Do any of these sound familiar? See, there actually was some truth there. My father did not deserve forgiveness. I didn't deserve to be abused, and it wasn't my fault. And most of my poor choices would not have happened had I not been abused, had I not been coming from a place of feeling like I didn't matter. I believed forgiveness was not necessary for me to live the rest of my life, to be okay, to be forgiven for my sins, and to just love Jesus as my Savior. So I decided I was going to search the Bible, find a verse, any verse, that was going to let me off the forgiveness hook. I can tell you, there isn't one. The longer I refused to forgive, the more I allowed my father's abuse to control me. Oh, I walked through life like everything was fine, but unforgiveness was eating me up inside. It was creating bitterness and anger. And Jesus' answer to the question of how many times I should forgive my brethren, my father, for the same offense, is 77 times. Ouch. Forgiveness and making amends for a Christian really are not optional. I'm to forgive as I'm forgiven. Jesus hung on that cross for me before I was ever born, before I ever sinned. His forgiveness of me was unconditional, undeserved, and unmerited. He died for me. And the thing is, the truth that was so hard to swallow is that Jesus died for my father too. The day I reached the point that my pain was bigger than my excuses, I sat at my desk, I threw my hands in the air, and I forgave my father. And it felt like nothing happened. But there was a slow change inside me. I stopped living in an angry place. I stopped blaming myself. I quit doubting, mistrusting, 
and judging others. I choose to live a forgiven and forgiving life. It is not easy, but it is good. When new memories surface, I forgive. When unresolved issues show up, I make amends. And each time, I get closer to being victorious over the effects of my abuse. Forgiveness does not settle all the questions of blame or justice or fairness, but it does break the cycle of pain and anger and bitterness. Is there something in your life which you can't let go? Is there someone with whom you cannot make amends? Someone who doesn't deserve your forgiveness? I get that. I understand. I can relate to the knot that's been forming in your chest as I've been speaking. My suggestion? Forgive anyway. While I don't know what most of you are dealing with, I do know this. It's more difficult to carry the weights of shame and guilt and unforgiveness and bitterness around than it is to forgive. What do you have to lose by saying, I forgive you? Or, I hurt you, I'm truly sorry. Nothing. And you have healing and freedom to gain. Thank you for letting me share. Wow, that's absolutely incredible uh, that someone who was hurt so badly could forgive someone that way. And yet, in Christ, we can. We can do that. And I know a lot of us are wrestling today with, you know, I don't need to forgive them. I, you know, that happened in the past. I'm just forgetting about it. Just, just move on. Why do we have to confront this? Why do I need to, to face this issue of forgiving others or seeking to be forgiven? Why do I need to do that? Well, you know, you, when you've worked out in the yard or in your wood shop or somewhere like that and you've gotten a splinter in your finger, you don't notice it at first usually, but later that day or the next day you notice it, your finger's red, it's maybe throbbing. If you squeeze it, it might even have a little pus come out. You've gotta get that splinter out before a terrible infection sets in. If the doctor tells you that you have cancer, you've gotta get rid of it. If, if you have a broken bone, you can't just ignore it and let it go. You have to set it in the right position or you'll be crippled. You can be spiritually crippled if you don't deal with the anger and resentment and bitterness in your heart. Unless you're willing to make amends and seek forgiveness if you've hurt someone or grant forgiveness if you've been hurt. We have to do that. But it's so hard I know it is. I know it's so hard. It was hard for Shandra. It's, it's hard for anybody else that's done the hard work of making amends and offering forgiveness and seeking forgiveness. But you know what helps me with this and I think helps all of us is what Jesus is talking about here. You've just got to do the math. You've got to do the math. And so let's, let's do this real quick. I don't know how old you are. Now, last service, everybody started telling me how they, old they are and it was shocking. But anyway... I'm just, I'm going to say this, okay? I'm, I'm almost, almost 60 years old, okay? Yeah, I know. Man, 
Okay, so I'm just gonna use this as an even number, a nice round number and say 60 years. And then I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure out how many hours I've lived in my life. Okay, I'm trying to figure that part out. So we'll take 60 and we'll multiply it by 365 days. And I know there's leap year. I'm not gonna be technical about that. And then we're gonna multiply each of those 365 days by the 24 hours in every day. Okay, you with me? So you got your phones out, you're already trying to figure this out. And I think the right amount, if I'm not mistaken, I had to write this one down. I think that the, the answer to this is basically you get 525,600 uh, hours. I, I've lived a long life. When you look at the hours, 525,600 hours. Now let's just say this. Let's say you only sin two times per hour. You sin only two times per hour. Now, I'm looking at some of you and I know I'm already starting to laugh, okay? <laughs> and you're looking at me and doing the same thing, so I know that, I get that, okay, I get that. But you know, if you, if you said two hours, and let's, let's say some, some, you know, hey, when you're asleep, I hope you're not sinning. But then maybe your dreams, I don't know, anyway. But if you, if you look at that, you know what the answer is here? Gotta get my bifocal right, I'm sorry. <laughs> One million fifty-one thousand two hundred sins. Now, okay, a couple little caveats to this. Some of those sins are whoppers. And some of them are little white lies. Little, little things, you thought them in your head, you know, you were bitter, you were lustful, you were angry. You never said anything, no one ever knows, they're just there, but God does. And the thing is, Jesus said that even if you're thinking it, even if you're saying it, even if you didn't actually murder, you're just angry at them, that, that's sinful. You know, you didn't actually have an affair, but if you were lusting, that's sinful. All these things, in other words, when we look at this, Millions of sins in our lives, and, and mine are probably a whole lot more. Maybe yours are a whole lot more. Maybe yours are a little less. But, but all of us have a huge debt of sin because we've all failed. We all fall short of what God expects. We've all hurt ourselves, hurt other people, and offended God. And the thing is, there is no way I could do enough good to somehow pay that back. There's not enough church services, enough to worship at, enough people to witness to for me to do it. There's not enough verses to memorize, money to give, Sunday school classes to teach, diapers to change in the nursery. There's not enough that I could do that would ever get rid of all this. I used to think that somehow my good would outweigh my bad, but when I was confronted with these kind of ideas, I understood that there, I was in terrible debt. I owed that $14 trillion, more money than the entire kingdom. There's no way I can pay it back. And that's why Jesus is saying, when we freely forgive, it's because we have been freely forgiven. 
fully and freely forgiven by Christ who gave his life on the cross, who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, who was handed over to the torturers, who died on the cross in our place so that his perfect righteousness would be applied to our debt of sin, our total spiritual bankruptcy that every one of us suffers from. All of us are in debt like this. This is just a visual aid to try to help us see the magnitude of our sin. And you're saying, but those sins are not that bad, and God, he just overlooks everything, and all that kind of, you know, James tells us, the brother of the Lord tells us in his letter, his, in the New Testament, you know, if you break the law, at one point you've broken the whole law, like a window glass. It's just a little tiny pebble from a BB, you know, just not a little, but it's broken. It's marred. And we've marred our relationship with God. We've marred the hope that he has for our lives and the plan for our lives that he has for us. We've marred all that because we've chosen to go our own way and sin. And we desperately need to pay this debt back, but we can't. And some of us are saying, God, please be patient. I will pay back everything. And so we're working really hard and we're trying to perform and we're trying to impress God. We say our prayers and we give our money and we go to church and we volunteer and we do all this kind of stuff and we're hoping, hoping, hoping that somehow God would forgive the debt or say that we've done enough. But he never will because we can never do enough ever. None of us. But Jesus did. And because he came and lived a righteous, perfect life, and because he died for you and he died for me, he took our place as our substitute. He suffered the punishment. He took the pain. He died the death that I deserved. He went to the torturers, suffered the judgment of God's holy wrath, and he was raised from the dead. And God says, it is finished. It is paid in full because of Christ. I don't have to perform anymore. I don't have to try to earn it anymore. If I'm trying to earn God's approval, if I'm trying to pay back the debt somehow, I'm going to get mighty cranky with the people around me. The stress and strain, and you, you've let me down, pay back what you owe me. I wonder if that's what's going on in the first servant. He just, he thought he had to pay it back and that's why he was so angry at the second servant that owed so little. He's thinking, I gotta, I gotta get all the money I can because somehow I'm gonna pay back, make myself worthy to God. And Jesus is trying to say by the story, there's no way you can make yourself worthy to God. He already loves you more than you deserve. But you and I have already, sir, already sinned far more than we think. And yet God is willing to forgive that debt. So maybe you're thinking about this and you're just saying, you know what? I've really racked up a pile of debt too and I need somebody to forgive my debt. Jesus is the one who wants to forgive it. Your Father in heaven will forgive it because of what Christ did for you. If you're willing to humble yourself and say, you know, no longer am I trying to pay my debt off to you, God. I'm trusting you. Would you please forgive my debt? I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Please save me. Please pay the debt. I can't. And he will. He forgives the debt. You owe him nothing. But everything. Because he owns you.
But it's not about performing and earning it all. Maybe there is somebody who's hurt you terribly, wounded you deeply, harmed you in some way. They betrayed you. They molested you. They lied about you or slandered you, bullied you, stole from you, physically harmed you in some way. That's terrible. Those people don't deserve God's forgiveness. They deserve a punch in the face. They deserve eternal fire in hell. But so do I. I I do. We all do. We deserve a punch in the face and worse. When Chandra said, Jesus died for my father, not just me, the good girl who'd been hurt, that's a real eye-opener to understand that Christ has died for everyone. If he's forgiven you so freely and fully, can you extend forgiveness to the people who've hurt you? I know they don't deserve it. It's not about them deserving it. It's not about that. It's about you letting go of the poison that's eating away at you and seeking to someday, hopefully, rebuild the relationship. Do they deserve it? No. Are you ready to do it right now? Maybe not. But are you willing to at least say to God, God, I'm willing to move toward forgiving. I know you've forgiven me so much. I really do hurt badly. Would you please help me and heal me and make it so that one day I can forgive and let go of it? Would you be willing to pray something like that? Maybe you're not the person that has been hurt, but maybe you've done the hurting. Maybe you've been neglectful, harmful, abusive. Maybe you've stolen, cheated, slandered, harmed somebody else. It might be your spouse. It might be your kids. It might be your parents. It might be your friends, a neighbor. Would you be willing to try to make amends with them and seek their forgiveness? Maybe they won't forgive. Maybe they'll want nothing to do with you. Maybe they'll laugh at you, mock you. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll just blow it off and say, oh, it was nothing. That was back when we were kids. Forget about it. You know it's not something you can just forget about. Would you be willing to go and ask forgiveness maybe you need to pray as you do that god can you show me what would help make this right to them is it is it time is it humility of course it's humility but is it making restitution is it is it just a a greater sincerity a greater sense and awareness of how, how much it hurt them and harmed them what they felt put yourself in their shoes Would you ask God to help you see it from their point of view? To feel it, to sense it. 
And I think when we do these things, when we pray for that kind of forgiveness ourselves, when we extend that kind of forgiveness to others, when we seek that kind of forgiveness from others, when we do, when we do that, that's what Jesus means when you forgive them from your heart. You've put your heart into it. And you're really sensing and grasping the magnitude of Christ's death to pay the debt that you owed God and I owed God. And you grasped how freely He's forgiven, how fully He's forgiven. And then and only then can you and I truly give that kind of forgiveness and seek that kind of forgiveness and rebuild the relationships that are broken in our lives. You know, forgiveness doesn't rebuild a relationship, but it starts it. It starts the process. Can you reconcile without forgiveness? I don't think so. But reconciliation begins with forgiveness. We have to forgive. So what we're going to do is just pray right now, and after we're done praying, the service is over. And I'm going to ask Dan to just maybe play some quiet music. And if you'd like to sit in your seat and pray, if you need to go talk to somebody, maybe you need to say, look, I've got a big amends to make with somebody and I, I need prayer to be accountable and I need you to pray. Maybe there's somebody you could ask it to help you pray about it. Maybe there's somebody here that you need to go reconcile with and ask for forgiveness or grant forgiveness. Oh, and by the way, beware of saying, I forgive you, isn't that nice of me? Don't do that. You miss the point. Forgive them in your heart. And then when they come and say, you know what, I did this and I know it was wrong. You say, it was wrong, but I forgive you. Because you already have. You've already done that. Let's pray. Father, this is hard for us to talk about. It's very hard because we all have been hurt and we've hurt others. And it's just easy to just say, well, they just need to be tougher. Or I was just a kid. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. And Father, I thank you, though, that you're the God of the universe who is so compassionate and so merciful that you are willing to send your son to be the perfect sacrifice to pay the debt that we owed and you were willing to forgive and cancel our debt completely, fully. And there's nothing we can do or have to do in order to earn your approval and to pay the debt. Thank you. I pray that because of that freedom and that forgiveness that we have in Christ, that we would truly be people who are forgivers and peacemakers makers of amends, builders of bridges, forgivers from the heart. May we become that way for your honor and for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.